Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode in our podcast. The music you've just heard was performed by John McCormick, an aria from Handel's opera Semele that the Irish tenor recorded in 1920. I chose it because I love McCormick's singing, but it's also a clue to the subject of our podcast today. McCormick's dates, 1884 to 1945, are almost identical to one of the great writers of the 20th century, fellow Irishman and tenor, James Joyce. Today I have scholar Brigham Barnes in the studio, and we're going to try something new. So far, all of our podcast episodes have featured artists who are members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. James Joyce was certainly not bad, but it will likely surprise you to learn that two of the last century's most influential books, Ulysses, published in 1922, and Finnegan's Wake, published in book form in 1939, both by Joyce, have allusions to Mormons, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and other tenets of our faith in them. To the best of my knowledge, this is unknown in Mormon studies, and Brigham has been researching some of these connections. So let's dig in. Welcome, Brigham. Uh, Thank you for having me, Glenn. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I know that you're an attorney and you write a blog, Steadily Mobbing. Mm -hmm. What else do you do and how did you uh, end up in the city? I live here in New York. I moved here 15 years ago to go to law school at NYU, and I have stuck around uh, ever since. I did graduate and I practice (laughs) law here in the city, and um, in my spare time I, I read I write. I um, look for opportunities to talk about what I read and write. I don't know what else I can tell you. That sounds very New York-y, doesn't yeah, just, it? Yeah, just New York stuff, man. We're going to be talking about James Joyce today. So uh, let's set up a little bit of a scaffolding of Joyce's info for our listeners. Modern Library named Joyce's Ulysses the best novel of the 20th century. NPR disagreed with them. It named Joyce's A Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man the best novel of the 20th century. But Joyce is probably on everybody's top 10 authors list in the English language. It's pretty hard to overestimate his influence. So how about if I provide a 10-cent bio of him, okay. and then Brigham, you chime in, and we'll take it from there. I assume that most people listening to this will know certainly his name, but my guess is that he's not as widely read as he was even 20 years ago. So maybe some people won't have much of a background about him. Joyce was born in Dublin in 1882. He received a good education despite his large family's humble finances. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, he's the oldest of 10 children. He left his native country in adulthood, and although he never lived there again after 1904, he never wrote about anything else but Ireland. His list of books is not very long. There's some poetry, 1907, 1912, and 1927. Dubliners, a collection of 15 short stories in 1914. A short novel, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, in 1916. A play, Exiles of 1918, that didn't get a major production until 1970. Oh, really? Uh, The novels, Ulysses of 1922 and Finnegan's Wake, which started to appear in serialized installments in 1924, but was finally published in whole in 1939. And then some posthumous things like letters and earlier versions of existing books and so on. So that's three novels, a collection of short stories, a play, a little poetry. And then Joyce died in 1941. What do you add to that? Well, first of all, I don't know how you put a portrait above Ulysses in your rankings, but if that's what NPR <laughs> wants to do, um, fine. And yeah, it seems, um, seems like those dates are correct. With a novelist whose reputation is as gigantic as his, those really aren't that many books. It's not. I know that people thought that after Ulysses, he might not write another novel, because what could he do? He had, he basically closed the book on what could be done with an English-language novel. And so he 
did something very crazy for his last book. I didn't get into Joyce in college. I was an English literature student, and in undergrad, they didn't really teach it. I think we might maybe read one short story from Dubliners or something. Mm-hmm. But I really became a fan when I read uh, Richard Elman's biography of him. Mm-hmm. That's just a, a heroic effort. That book is so great. It's that quite biography. Um, something. It's an undertaking equal to one of Joyce's yeah. books, I think. And it said that after he finished Ulysses, that he got involved with all of these other things that had nothing to do with literature. Like there was this Irish tenor named Sullivan, I think his name was. Mm-hmm. And, and Joyce decided that he was going to make him famous. <laughs> and so he stopped writing completely to kind of be a manager. Uh-huh. And he got involved with all these things that had nothing to do with literature at all. So how did you become interested in Joyce? I think very similar situation. Oh. I, um, I read Araby in a... Um, a class my sophomore year at BYU, and it made quite the impression, and left me very curious. I remember that I had a freshman, my roommate freshman year had read a portion of the Arts of the Young Man, and, and he talked about it a lot. So I was just I was just aware of the James Joyce name from him, bringing that up, and I think he had, read, had me read the the Mukau beginning of the first yes. chapter. Araby had my won me over big time, so I just read Dubliners. I loved it. I read a Portrait. I liked um, it a lot until the last chapter. And then I just kept going. Then it was Ulysses, and that took me a while. And then it was Finnegan's Wake, and I was in. And while I was at BYU, I never had a chance to um, take anything too in depth. I know they, I know they have Joyce classes every now and then, just never lined up with when I was there. And so I was just kind of a, on my own, very curious about this guy and his work. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, I came to him through the short stories, and that somebody could write Araby and the Dead. That were so precise. Like, is there an extra word? That's in the Memphis? thing about. That's the thing. Just their absolute is formal perfection. It's just pristine and um, and emotional and, yeah. and and for somebody who's clearly a modernist and wanting to play around with techniques mm-hmm. and uh, and and modes of expression to be able to tell a beautiful story like mm-hmm. the dead so cleanly. That just really sucked me in. And then by the time I had gone through that and, and portrait, then I felt that I was ready for more experimental things. So it was kind of gradual for me. Yeah, I, I think it, it's cool how he, he set out. I mean, he begins by showing you can write a story like none other. And then from there it goes into places no one else had ever been to. And so it shows he's got, he's got the fundamentals and he, um, then he takes off from there. Yeah, you know, when I go to the Museum of Modern Art sometimes to a large retrospective of an artist that I really know pretty well, like the de Kooning exhibition mm-hmm. of a couple of years ago, in the first gallery there were these artworks that de Kooning made in college, sort of, right after that kind of college, and they were the most realistic drawings, like classical works, like Aang couldn't draw any better mm-hmm. than de Kooning. It's interesting to say that. I, I think often of... Um there's a um, Kurt Vonnegut book called Bluebeard that's about abstract expressionism. And in it, someone talks about how Jackson Pollock could um, paint you Washington crossing the Delaware, but, you know, is famous for his squiggles. And that and these, I don't know, these exceptionally talented people, there's the fundamentals, they got the fundamentals. It's not just people throwing paint around or whatever. There's uh, the true genius and expertise is grounded in um, ability, not just um, imagination. So we're throwing out the title of Ulysses a little bit. Let's describe what that is. So Ulysses is, is many, many things. <laughs> like, how do you describe it? It's the story it's a, of a day. It's many, many things. Many but um, Homer's Odyssey, the, the epic, 
Each of the chapters of the original Homer is written by Joyce in a completely different literary mode. Transplanted to contemporary Ireland, all taking place on a single day. He's using modernist techniques of stream of consciousness and interior monologues that changed how writers after him approach storytelling. I think all of that is sort of standard issue thinking. When Ulysses came out, it was essentially required reading for anybody who wanted to be sophisticated. There's this really cool photograph of Marilyn Monroe yep. <laughs> reading it. But the book was controversial, too. Yeah, it's a complicated history. There were just last year, the year before... A good book came out called The Most Dangerous Book about the legal history of getting Ulysses published. I think most issues of Ulysses come with a copy of the U.S. judge declaring that it was all right to sell it in the United States, clearing of obscenity, but reading the whole book on the, it was quite um, fraught getting that published um, in the United States and elsewhere. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the background about Joyce. So now let's make this Mormon connection. You know, when we talk about Mormon studies generally, what I'm trying to do most of the time is to get people to look at artists who are members of the church and to learn about them and their work, because I still feel that there's so much to discover. You could say that a big part of what the Mormon Art Center's purpose is, is to legitimize the study and appreciation of artworks created by members of the church. But there's more to it than that. And so this is different. There's another aspect of Mormon studies how does the church, its history and people and culture interact with others? So I guess that's what we're discussing a little bit more today. What do they make of us and how does their artwork that refers to us function? And what do great works of art created by people other than LDS members but commenting on the church have to say? So I guess I'm kind of curious about all of that and I kind of put all of that into what Mormon studies could be. Is that what you're thinking too? That sounds good to me. Yeah. I shouldn't be surprised that Joyce tossed allusions to the church into his books because what isn't in there? I exactly. mean, it's packed. As far as I know, though, there's only one reference to the church in Ulysses, and we'll get that to in a minute. So you've been working um, independently on research about Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and Mormonism. Did you just stumble onto that as you were reading? Basically, just a stumble. I was rereading Finnegan's Wake for the first time in a while last summer, and I had f- I remember them being there, but I, f- I found one or two things I'd underlined from previous readings that had... They seemed Mormony to me, but then a lot of other stuff was jumping out at me, as, and I was definitely giving a better educated and experienced reading this time, and I was just seeing a lot of stuff that struck me as very curious that they would have, there would be such to me clear references to Mormon prophets, um, the Book of Mormon, uh, temple, more or less, uh, in there, and I just started wondering, what is that doing there? And once you see one... They, then yeah, they start they, seeing things start popping and, up, and, and I've and I've I've gone back and exercised some discretion and thrown out like a few like there's like um one part where one word he's written um has like BYU is in the word, <laughs> but I'm like he's probably not using BYU. <laughs> I don't know when I start calling it by the abbreviation, but I'm, I'm tossing that one out so that my other references can seem more legitimate. My guess is that a lot of people have not read Finnegan's Wake, so. Let's back up a little tiny bit. Tell us a little bit about the book, and then why do you walk us through some of your discoveries? What is the book? Well, as Ulysses is the story of a day, uh, Finnegan's Wake is the story of a night, and it is the relating of a dream, and it is told entirely in a dream language containing just, it's a book of puns and of all, I don't know, numerous languages smushed together, and so it's it's not exactly English, Um, it's um, or... 
that might be overstating it, but it's, if it, somebody's reading it out loud, it feels very English. It, there, there's but something on the page; to, it's kind of hard to deciphering. You know, if you if you're familiar with the um, Lewis Carroll's poem, "The Jabberwocky," it's oh, kind of exactly it's, it. it's like the Jabberwocky for 630 pages, and um, it more or less is a dream about a um, innkeeper known by the abbreviation mostly HCE, and those letters can be they appear as different words like here comes everyone here comes everybody and, and different have his have childers everywhere and he has a, a wife um and olivia plurabel she's alp and they've got two sons shem and sean and a daughter isabel and other characters but also joyce himself said that the book has no characters um and has no plot but a lot of scholars have tried to piece together things that run through it. And so reading it is like trying to remember a dream. There's parts that make sense. And I think parts where he's certainly intentionally made it darker um, and make it, made it obscure. So you're just dipping in and out of things you can understand. And it has a cumulative effect as you're reading it that you begin to notice things that are being repeated and you start, you start getting hunches that you know what's going on, but it's never fully illuminated. Well, I mean, there are scenes, you, you know, you can make sense of it. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's not just random words. It's not, it's not random, a, right? It's, uh, but it's 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 not normal. Ulysses bothered people because they didn't know immediately where they were. Mm-hmm. But you could say the same thing about you know many books of the period. Mm-hmm. But I think this kind of went beyond that. Well, for it, you really have to give yourself yeah. over to it. If anything, Finnegan's Wake serves a, a purpose of being like, oh, Ulysses is perfectly readable. <laughs> this, exactly. is the, this is the counterpart here. And so I, I feel like if you're reading Ulysses, and as long as you can remember or figure out who's talking, you can follow it with maybe the exception of the Oxen and the Sun chapter, which is tricky. But Finnegan's Wake is always a challenge. I mean, there's parts where it just changes narrators without telling you that's happening, and you just kind of have to realize, yeah. oh, different things are happening now. Readers of Faulkner would say the same thing, though, yep. with Sound and the Fury. Mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, from the story and the publishing side of it, Faulkner wanted to print Sound and the Fury in four different colors or seven <laughs> different colors, something like that. He wanted it to be uh-huh. readable. And they said, no, no, we're going to go with our way. But if you go to Sunday school at church and they're on the Isaiah week, mm-hmm. people are completely happy delving into these things that, yeah. that shift on a dime where one word can mean multiple things. And the narrative reading of a text kind of goes away and you sort of have to try to figure out what it might mean to you, mm-hmm. but it could, be, it could mean multiple things. But this book is that to the nth degree. Yeah. All right. So then, why don't you tell us some examples of illusions? Okay. First of all, what is an illusion? Oh, boy. Um, a reference? That's a, that's a yeah. okay question to ask, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a surprisingly difficult one when it comes out of nowhere. But yeah, I, I guess what I mean, what I, in my case, I mean, in Fingers Awake, I'm looking for words that look like words I associate with, with Mormonism or names I associate with Mormonism as many things. And then later, there's also, I've been picking up on thematic things. Let's say you're reading a story that takes place in Ireland and the word Mormon's in there. Yeah. That jumps that it, jumps out. It jumped out at me. And then you have to say, well, why is that here? Mm-hmm. Why don't you give us some examples of okay. words that you found? Um, all right, let's see. A good one to start with, maybe. This is... Found at about page 198, and this this is from a famous section of the book, often called the Anna Livia Plurable section, where two washerwomen stand on opposite sides of the river Liffey, and they're washing H.C.E. and his family's laundry 
in the river and um, gossiping about the family. So uh, airing their, I guess, their, their dirty laundry and exchanging gossip about the family. And one washerwoman says the next. Now, this is just one sentence, and I will do my best. And no Irish accent for me. Oh, that's a little bit sad. Well, do you want to do it? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the washerwoman says, um, this is going to go on for a bit. Well, old Humber was a gloman as Grampus, with tears at his Thor and bubbles for ages, and neither bowman nor shot abroad and bales a brat. On the crests of Rockies and near a lamp in the kitchen or church at Giant's Holes and Grafton's Causeway and Deathcap Mushrooms, round Fungless Grave and that great Tribune's Barrow, all Darnell's Ocumule, sitting somber on his set, Dramen and Droman, usking queasy quizzers of his rueful countenance, his child linen, child linen scarf uh, to encourage his obsequies, where he'd check their depths in, the Mormon ti- in that Mormon's Thames, Bequested in Hansiddle's hop, step, and deep end with his birth, with his births in their toiling moil, his swallower opened the, from swolf to four, and the snipes of the gutter, pecking his crocks, hunger striking all alone, and holding doomsdag over Hunsley, drearing his weird with his dander up, and his fringe combed over his eyes, and droning on, lofts till the sight of the sterns, after swarthy cows and weedy brooks, and the tits of buddy and the loits of pest, and to peer was perished worth that mess." Well, you get extra points for, you. for that. I was following along in the text as you were reading, and it really is Jabberwocky. It's Jabberwocky. It's not, but it's fun, though. There's it's lots fun. of fun stuff in it. The, yeah, and base, more or less the scene is HCE, our hero, is down, he's in a bad mood, and he's sitting, um, possibly afflicted with the Black Plague. <laughs> um, and the line that jumped out to me in the reading is um, here in the middle where he says, where he checked their depths in that Mormon's Thames. Um, a lot of readers take that to be, he translated as he checks for their deaths in the mornings, in that morning's times, like he's checking obituaries, looking for people. Um, but what I see when I read that is he checks their depths in that, in the Mormon's Thames, like the river. Like the river. And yeah. so the first connection I made was like, what's a, what would that river, what would the Mormon Thames be? And I thought, the Mississippi River, you know, running along the great Mormon city of Nauvoo. I can't think of another river associated with Mormons. And then another connection that's in that same sentence, then he says, checks their depths. That makes me think of Samuel Clemens taking, you know, his moniker of Mark Twain from the, that that's Mark, uh, the, the, the measuring of the, the Mississippi from the river boats, that the two knots on the rope or whatever. So I see that as a, yes, a reference to Mark Twain. And then there are other Mark Twain references in the book. Um, Tom Sawyer appears on the first page of Finnegan's Wake. And that's just the sort of thing that I think is interesting. And there's other stuff like that. Then you can also say, you know, what are other Mormons' rivers? You could also say, well, um, there's the river, the waters of Mormon, uh, it, where, you know, uh, Mormon, uh, or, well, not Mormon, but uh, Alma, Alma the Younger or Senior, whichever, sorry, um, Baptized many and um, a place of baptism and baptism is another thing that appears often in Finnegan's Wake. Maybe not often, but it's a recurrent theme. There's a part where HCE um, is buried under a river for a while or under a lake um, while he's awaiting verdict of a trial, more or less. That comes up a lot, and he comes out of the water exonerated at least sort of for a, a baptismal time. thing yeah. right so and there's there's other submerging and, and the emerging. title itself well yeah so finnegan's wake the, the title um refers to the famous ballad that tells a story of a hod carrier named finnegan that falls off a wall dies or seems to be dead and at his wake um at his 
the wild party they throw for him, someone spills whiskey on him and he springs back to life. And so the whole book of Finnegan's Wake is stories of things coming back to life. But in the book, in, in Finnegan's Wake, they try to convince him not to come back. They do keep, well, yeah, they keep Finnegan dead so that HCE can um, assume the new role. That's something that, yeah, that's a part of it. Yeah, so, <laughs> I don't yeah, wanna... so, I mean, you, you get into these issues of author's intent, mm-hmm. but part of the fun of the, of the reader, which is what I care about a little bit more, mm-hmm. is how rich these illusions are. They just kind of resonate like that water that ripples out in mm-hmm. lots of different directions. Yeah, um... Let's see if there's an, another good one or two. Um, one that I like that's pretty, I think, clear to me as a reference is there's a, um, a chapter where one of the sons, um, Sean, Sean the Post, he's traveling down a river in a barrel. And the barrel stops outside the church where his sister Isabel and her 28, the 28 heliotrope girls, uh, the, the, the leap year girls, um, go to school and he they come out and he lectures them on living a good life um more or less and he's in this selection i'm gonna read he's more or less gonna be talking about um being good and the rewards of heaven and uh he says this is at page 455 if anyone's reading along if you want to be felix come and be parked the sacred ease there the cnet and pobble cues remainder to it to it seek it head up no petty family squab- squabbles up there, nor homemade hurricanes in our cohort yard. No cup of hurling, no apocalypse, nor no punch and judling, nor no nothing. With the Burns, which is far better, and Eve forever idle be, you will hardly reconnoitre the old wife and her new bustle and the farmer shinner and his latter-day paint. So he's describing in heaven there's um, no family fights, no homemade hurricanes in the courtyard, no throwing of cups, no apocalypse, no punch and judy show fights and then in this state you will hardly recognize uh, the old wife with her new bustle or the former sinner in his latter-day paint or is so is, i think that's okay. the latter-day saint i think so too it seems safe to me you know but the actual letters of mormon m-o-r-m-o-n appear uh, a bunch of times it's kind of hard to think of that that the intent could have been anything other than that right <laughs> yeah i or, am I, or is it no, possible I think he, that he's saying well, other things? It's possible he's saying other things, but... Additional um, things, maybe. Here's one one thing that's very interesting. Well, for, on the very last page, this is a quick one. On the very last page of the book, as the River Liffey is about to um, head out to sea and the story is about to repeat itself, uh, the final narration, one part of it says, I see them rising. Save me from those ter- terrible prongs. Two more. One, two Mormons more. So, Avilava, my leaves have drifted from me, all but one clings still, I'll bear it on me, to remind me of Lif. So, one, two Mormons more. Um, it's spelled M-O-R-E-M-O-N-S, but that's a later instance of Mormon. And there's another one that I, I know of right now, but this is at 534, and this one's pretty interesting in its history, kind of. And it says, I can't go, can take off my dirty nine articles of quoting here in Phoenix Park, before those in heaven to provoke myself, by gamercy of justice, I mean very men and Mormon stiff, stiff and staunch forever, and enter under the advocacies from Miss Norris. It goes on and on. But that's another Mormon with an E. Um, so he says, I mean very man and Mormon. So he means every man and more than that. So a very interesting thing about this is that in, and I think I kept saying this is very interesting, so I better come through, um, in 
the workbook where he worked out his drafts, this line first read, instead of, I mean, very man and Mormon, it said, now I Mormon, uh, and he's crossed this out in crayon. Uh, and this matches the first verse of the book known as the words of Mormon in the book of Mormon, which starts out, uh, now, and now I Mormon being about to deliver up the record, which I have making the hands of my son, Ronan, et cetera, et cetera. Really? So that seems to me as a, something directly quoted or taken out of the Book of Mormon is the only evidence really I have that he, Joyce had, I mean, I don't know what kind of contact or exposure he had to the church. We can only guess or conjecture until I have a chance to talk to historians from both sides. But this seems like pretty solid indication that he had some exposure to the Book of Mormon if he could lift a line. And I mean, right? it seems like a good line to lift, but it's also... I mean, what line could you expect someone to know without having looked through the book a bit? Most of the references that I've heard of in Joyce regarding Mormonism have been the kind of things that anybody who knew a little bit about cultural Mormonism, Mm -hmm. specifically um, anti-Mormon stuff and connections with polygamy, would know. And polygamy pops up in Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. um, What have you got there? Glenn's point is something I'm not I'm not sure about that one, but it's um the Do you know this one? Uh no, I don't read that. Mormon Melodious Jigsmith. Is that a Joseph is every, Yeah, that's a Joseph Smith reference. I I've got um on polygamy I thought we might be talking about there's a part at five forty two where Brigham Young makes an appearance. It what says is that? it says Mr Mr uh there's kinda of like a back and forth of questioning and he says Mr answers Brigham Young, Brigham Young, Brigham Young. Brigham. So, Brigham Young. So, I mean, so it seems to be a um, confluence of uh, polygamy and um, HDE's incident. Throughout the book, there's a reference. It's never quite cleared. Something went on with uh, the main character and some young women in the park. Uh, and then Joseph Smith appears in a footnote on page 262 of the book, it's a tricky one where it says, Yusuf Smurite and ye Mermon answereth with from his belying place below the tight mark, go to hell. And so it seems it says Joseph Smith and Mormon or Merman answer from their lying place below the tide mark, go to hell or go get help. And it's interesting that's that's a response to um the text above, what it's footnotes on, it says that this the bridge is this bridge is upper, cross, thus come to castle, knock. A password, thank. Yes, please. Purse, your please. So it seems also of interest to a Latter-day Saint that um, you have a person at a door requesting entry and a password. And then the footnote is Joseph Smith and the Mormons from beneath, beneath I guess, the um, uh, the water. What's, the, what's the, the moat? Down in the moat, yelling, go to hell to the person trying to get in. There's LDS in there, too. Yeah. And... and, and then there's also, here's one, Holy Joe and Eden Lay. Oh, that's a good a one. A reference to Joseph Smith digging up uh, in the Hill Cumorah. So, and then w- regarding the polygamy, it's not random because in one section he's talking, he's, he's putting this note that reads Mormon right next to references to the Quran. Mm-hmm. So these two cultures that have polygamy in their histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, are there more? Or am I? There's there's a wanna... few more. There's one. Um, Glenn's been quoted when I began this research. All my googling, I couldn't find anything else that had been written on references to 
Mormonism in um, the Wake, but Glenn was able found me an article from I think the '60s. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you what that that is about. So I just did. I mean, I, I had never heard of any of this stuff, which made me feel really stupid. Like I considered myself to be well, you're, a little you're, bit you're, interested you're, in this topic. You're, you're, you're a Ulysses man. You're I a, know guilt and shame. Anyway, so. I just did a quick uh, thing, and I came across an article in the James Joyce Quarterly of 1973, summer issue, and the title of the article is The Mormons at the Wake by an author named L.L. Lee. Mm -hmm. I would love to know who that is. have no idea. The, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've tried to find out who this guy is. But well, I, he or she, we don't know. That's right. Um, anyway, so, so the author had about 20 possible allusions mm -hmm. in Finnegan's Wake to Joseph Smith, Mormon polygamy, Utah, LDS, the Temple, the Articles of Faith, and Brigham Young that appear in the novel. The problem with the article is the author isn't going as far as you did kind of to explain them. Mm -hmm. what these things mean. Like, okay, it's like, almost like doing a word search. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think that this LLD is not LDS, and I'll tell you why. Really? I was thinking yeah. the opposite. There's a line in the book where it meant, H.C. more or less is describing the clothing that his wife is wearing. And he sums it all up, he sums it all up by calling it a remarkable little endowment garment. Really? Period. And Lee he says, Lee, well, Lee brings that up and says, this seems like it's just a chance. But the next sentence after that says, so is it the, full excerpt I use is, is this remarkable little endowment garment, period, fastened at various places. And old uh, temple garments back in the day, I mean, Google image search at All your right. own risk, were tied together by fasteners. Uh, you know, they had little they had little ties. So, so I think contemporary to Joyce's time. And uh, either Lee didn't catch that or didn't, didn't know to catch it. Well, if anybody listening knows the... the <laughs> If you, don't, if, you know, if you know if you know is you know th this brings up all, two major questions for me one is so what mm -hmm. and but you can say the same thing about any illusion but so mm -hmm. what and the second question is are we sure that these are legit how much could Joyce know or did know about the church mm -hmm. and i have a theory maybe i want to kind of answer the beginning i don't know how the, much it matters how what well, oh, that, the why? Yeah, why it matters? Because he's got everything in the book, so I think it's just neat. Is kind of my feeling, and yeah, yeah. you know, don't know the quote, but um, in Freud's interpretation of dreams, he says, you know, a dream when you're interpreting, you can enter it at any point and draw any conclusion you want to do. And I think that's what Finnegan's Wake study is: is you look at all the things that are written, and there's just people that have been like, look at this one thing, I'm going to make a PhD out of it. You can read people I've read as big articles about how the book resembles an eyeball, um, you know, how, you know, the river sounds are actually the rushing of the blood in the sleeper's ear that you can go to outer space with ideas. And so this is my rocket ship, I mm. guess, are these well, things. And Joyce loved all of that. I mean, isn't, I mean, I can't paraphrase it properly, but didn't he say that he, he imagined scholars just wrestling yep. over this for centuries? Yeah. Okay. Here's my theory. With the publication of Randy Astle's amazing book, Mormon Cinema, Origins mm -hmm. to 1952, and I had to plug it because... That was a great episode. We published, well, yeah, we, we did a podcast, it? and we published that book, uh, the Mormon Arts Center published it last year. I also think it's just such an incredible piece of scholarship that's going to be uh, yielding insights for decades. But anyway, we know quite a bit more about how the reputation of the church spread through Europe at the first part of the 20th century. And my guess is that Joyce came in contact with it through the arts. Here's how. 
Anti-Mormon plays and films were rampant in Europe in the first two decades of the 20th century, starting with plays in London, Through Death Valley or the Mormon Peril of 1911, and The Girl from Utah, 1913, and then a string of silent films from 1911, all made in Europe, including Tilly and the Mormon Missionary, A Victim of the Mormons, and The Flower of Mormon City. Actually, there are some flower jokes, uh, bloom-like flower Mm -hmm. jokes, that might connect with this if scholars are paying attention they hear there's some seed for thought this seed the, uh, yark this started a flood of other movies an episode of early mormon days the mountain mill massacre and other again all of these were films made in europe mm-hmm. astle writes that there was also about a dozen other anti-mormon films between 1914 and 1922 most of them are lost now some of them are from the u.s but england denmark and france were making these and their fears were the old tropes of missionaries carrying off young mm-hmm. women um, and also a ridicule of polygamy. Probably the film with the biggest distribution was A Mormon Maid of 1917, and all of these trafficked in lecherous Mormon stereotypes. Additionally, there were four separate film adaptations of Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, whose plot device is the Mormon murder in Salt Lake City of its characters. And these were distributed in the U.S. and in Europe in 1914 and 1915. So that adds up to quite a lot of salacious content Mm -hmm. in the early days of commercial film. Well, Joyce loved the movies. In fact, he established the first movie theater in Ireland. Trivia, did you know that? Sounds familiar. (laughs) He called it the Volta Cinematograph. In 1909, it started. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that his first contact with our religion came through these cinematic depictions. At the very least, the view of the church could have been pervasive in Trieste, Paris, and Zurich, where Joyce lived, certainly for somebody as intellectually acquisitive as he was. So what do you think of that theory? That's very interesting. And I mean, I hope I'm not jumping in. And it lines up nicely with the one mention of Mormons in Ulysses is in a sinister context. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's got... There's something to it. Film could be the smoking gun there. It could be. It could be. And um, But, you know, later on... After 1922, that's the year that Ulysses was uh, published. By then, anti-Mormon films were out. Mm-hmm. They they had lost their shock value. The church was no longer participating in polygamy, and the references to Mormonism, the allusions to Mormonism in Finnegan's Wake are different. They're more nuanced. Mm-hmm. There, the the Ulysses reference is just sort of a put down. Yeah, but it wouldn't surprise me to know that Joyce, as he discovered more and more about the church. Um, started putting additional aspects of the church into these books. Found more use for it. Yeah. I wonder if we sound like a couple of like tin hat conspiracy theorists going over this stuff. But Well, what could be better in 2018 like, than actually, a good conspiracy theorist? Yeah, proud, proud of it. We've referred to, but haven't really uh, gone into, the, the illusion in Ulysses, so let's do that. Okay. As far as I know, really, there's only this one reference to the church in the book. But now I'm tempted to go hunting for yep. some more. In Ulysses chapter 15, and it corresponds to the Circe episode of uh, Homer's Odyssey, Ulysses goes to the palace of Circe and resists her magic that turns half of his fellow sailors into swine. Ulysses is protected by Hermes, who gives him a magic herb called Molly. Hmm. Uh, cool, because in Joyce's Ulysses, Bloom's wife is named Molly. But he's seduced by her and remains on the island for a year. Again, that's the Homer. In the novel, Joyce's protagonists, Bloom and Stephen, end up late in the night 
in Nighttown, the brothel area of Dublin. And in a mental haze, Bloom imagines many transformations of himself, sort of like the Odyssey's bewitched sailors, including a scene in a courtroom where people that Bloom has encountered during the day return as jurors and accuse him of multiple crimes and degrading embarrassments, including bigamy. The literary mode for the chapter is drama, so it reads like a play. For me, the first time I read Ulysses, um, the Cersei episode was my favorite part and made the most sense because anytime it didn't make sense, I was like, oh, it's not supposed to. It's a hallucination. Yeah. Anytime that things that I understand, it's like, you oh. You yourself an out. It's like, oh, it's all, it's all in their minds. So, okay, so back on track. First watch. He is a marked man. Another girl's plate cut. Wanted. Jack the Ripper. A thousand pounds reward. Second watch. Odd. Whispers. And in black, a Mormon anarchist. So what are we to make of that? We've associated here Mormons with Jack the Ripper, anarchists. And that's really in line with these anti-Mormon films. Mm -hmm. Uh, A Mormon maid is this super creepy guy who kind of is stalking this young girl. Mm -hmm. And he's supposed to be... It's not like a missionary. He's supposed to be like a a prophet or something. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 really melodramatic. I mean, he, he's practically like snarling and, yeah. and has a long mustache that he's twirling with mm-hmm. his fingers. His approach to Mormonism is definitely not as nuanced as his approach to his own Catholicism, mm-hmm. which is makes complex. And yeah, well, it makes sense that it wouldn't be as nuanced. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. that's right. But what is a Mormon reader to make of, of, the, of these illusions? And why is it an exciting find? I guess, first of all, it's just exciting to be like, oh, hey, look, we were noticed 100 years ago. And considering first starting with the puns, I've begun, I guess, the second phase of my study or research um, has to do larger thematic things. I'm seeing things like that trigger Mormon-like thoughts. Um, one one critic of Finnegan's Wake, uh, Philan Bishop, he basically argues the book is unknowable. There's a lot of critics that try to chart out a plot yeah. in a story, and he says they don't. It's not supposed to be that thing. And then at at best from Finnegan's Wake, we're just getting glimpse of recognizable things that we can build on. And for me, some of those recognizable things have been Mormon related. And there's things I'm starting just barely beginning to try to figure out. Like there's. There's some business in the book that comes up every now and then about a letter in a trash heap that a chicken digs out. And that this letter, which may be either uh, the main character's confession of his crimes, or it might be Finnegan's Wake, the book itself is this letter. So, But it's being unburied. So first, right away, I think of pulling the golden plates out of sure. the book There's more to it. The, the letter, although H.C.E. is the author, his son... Shem, also known as Shem the Penman, is writing, has written the letter. And this appear, these things appear in pieces throughout the book that kind of come up. There's not like a chapter about the letter necessarily. Shem writes the letter. Sean the Post, as he sometimes known, is supposed to deliver the letter. And he's taking credit for the letter. And um, he's supposed to take it to, I believe it's, it's meant to be brought to Anne Olivia. But then the chicken, I think his name Henrietta, is also an Anna Olivia character um, herself. Uh, and so it makes me think of just the various authors that the Book of Mormon went through in both its ancient writing and its translation. And then also sometimes when Shem is writing the letter once, maybe twice, he's writing it under the alias of Mr. Smooth, M-S-U-T-H, which makes me think of Smith. And so that's like a peek into where I'm beginning to wonder about this letter. It's a thing that has my curiosity up. If we switch to 
Ulysses. The book, as we know, is inspired by the Odyssey. The Odyssey is a great heroic tale, and from our heroic tales, we, you know, we're familiar with the hero's journey archetype of separation, initiation, return, and the popular steps to it. An interesting thing is that um, Joseph Campbell, who's known for popularizing the, the hero's journey archetype, was also a Joyce scholar, and in the early 40s released one of the first full-length analyses of Finnegan's Wake called The Skeleton Key to it. So he was very involved in Joyce, and he's got some interesting stuff on Ulysses as well. And I have become curious myself in just how the hero's journey charts with the what in Mormonism we know as the plan of salvation. That, you know, we lived in a premortal existence with our father, our heavenly parents, and then we left them to come to earth to learn and uh, experience this journey through life, and then we're going to return to them at some point. And then also that this plan of salvation charts neatly with what we learn in the temple endowment ceremony. So anyway, at the conclusion of Ulysses, Bloom and Stephen have been reconciled, they've met, they've spent some time together. The last chapter, second to last chapter, um, I don't want to mess this up, but I'm pretty sure it's called the Ithaca chapter, and it tells this, the last actions they do before Stephen goes home and before Bloom ends his journey by going up to the bedroom. Let's consider this a holy of holies. He's going to go to where Molly is, the object of his adoration throughout the book. So something of a deity figure, more or less. He wants to return to her presence. And um, before he enters into the bedroom, this whole chapter is written in a, Joyce called it a catechism style, a question and response. Yeah. Before he can, there's it's a whole chapter of questions and answers before he's allowed readmission into the place that symbolizes, you know, the presence of God. And so that to me is neat. Because so. it's not just the connection, but it's, it's suggesting it's not, the richness of it. Yeah. It's not, this is certainly not Joyce's intention, but it, it takes me it, that, that suddenly I'm thinking about a book I love and I'm thinking about a religion I love and my background and I'm making connections and thinking about both of them more deeply at the beginning of the very last chapter of Finnegan's Wake, they're um, at a point where I'm bleary-eyed and thinking I've been going through this book, seeing things that aren't necessarily here. There's um, there's a lot of river puns in basically any time that Joyce can throw in a river name in the book, he does, particularly the Anna Olivia Pluribel chapter. But at the beginning of this last chapter, he mentions the Susquehanna River, and that jumps out at me. It's just there. Just uh, I've got the quote in here. Edders chuckle humoristic, but why put the cur after the knocks? Let shrill the Duan Gallus Han, and she how the susque, susqueen henna, susque henna makes dusk run a crooked, once for chanter male, twice for the pother, and one, two, three, thrice for the waiter. So I see Susquehanna River there, and it's a river rich in LDS history, and I start to wonder if there's anything to it, and I'm going over the pages, and I don't really see anything, so I think it has to, I have to let it be, but... Later on, I recall, there's a um, critics, a big thing about Finnegan's Wake is, is uh, we've talked about this repetitive nature of the style. And one thing that influenced Joyce, a major thing that influenced Joyce, was a book by an Italian philosopher, Vico. Um, the book was, the, it's called The New Science. And among the things in The New Science that influenced Joyce, there's a theory of repetitive cycles of history. Basically, there's four cycles, or actually three ages, um, the divine, the heroic, and the human, also known as the primitive, semi-historic, or historic. And after the three cycles, um, there's a period where it prepares for renewal and return the first cycle. So the four sections of Finnegan's Wake, 
can be seen to correspond to those four cycles or four stages. Um, so in the, the final section of the book is also one chapter, this chapter that we're talking about here. And so this is a chapter about renewal, rebirth, restoration. And, you know, the Susquehanna River is where we have the priesthood was restored. Is that meant by Joyce? I don't know. But it's a thing I was, it was a connection I was able to reach that ties in with additional Joyce scholarship. So I think it's interesting. And then there's just other things that just can really snowball. And then, and then just the notion of repetitive cycles of history, uh, it also, it just goes, you know, nicely with other things from Mormonism, such as, you know, you learn a lot in seminary about the Nephite pride cycle. There's a cycle that repeats itself in the Book of Mormon of basically uh, being humble, being blessed for your humility, but blessings lead to, you know, gain leads to pride and then leads to a downfall, leads to humility. There's this, this rising up and falling repetition of the Book of Mormon that you see in Finnegan's Wake. And that just something I respond to. And then also when you're reading the Book of Mormon and, you know, Nephi himself describes time as an eternal round, or when Jacob says that um, life to the Nephites was like a dream, you say like, oh, it's just like something, again, tin hat. It's enough to keep well, me interested in both things. Well, I mean, Finnegan's Wake is famously... You know, it ends and it ends with a sentence that takes you right back to the beginning which is yeah. a fragment that connects it in a circle yeah. you know when I come across works um, by great artists in or out of the church doesn't matter the richness that they bring to an understanding about our mm-hmm. culture when it's referenced transforms me mm-hmm. so let's say if I go to see Kushner's angels in America I'm not looking for spiritual insight necessarily mm-hmm. I don't and I don't necessarily care what they think of the church if it's criticism or whatever that doesn't really affect me that much but what I find is that they they bring things to the table that I've never considered before Mm -hmm. and I think with these examples that you're sharing today with your new research that's what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. I think you know might ask you know why should you read Joyce at all for me I think Joyce I think people should rejoice because a lot of people just don't understand how good writing can be. How good, just like, it's it's just, you think of like good books and then there's just, people need to know that there's book that books that match the talent, you know, that you see in a Leonardo da Vinci or something. There's just that quality of writing. I remember the first time I read Ulysses and just thinking, how could one human have made this book, which is, or, or things like that. And so the, people just don't know that there's things happening on such a, elevated level that's worth just some exposure to you know even if and it's if it's reading Araby and the dead and and i don't mean to diminish them i mean that might be all you need to read but you know have to believe that our talents come from a father in heaven we believe that they're given to us and so i think it's in our interest to see hear the best music that can be made by anyone or see the best art or read the best writing and some of it reflects, you know, his failings as a mortal and might not be, you know, for your mom or your aunt or, or your brother, depending. But then there's, you know, there's moments of beauty that I think just can be, or intellect and insight and Joyce and these other great artists that are just going to be to our benefit to be exposed to and, you know, uh, know what humans are capable of. Right. I wonder, as the areas of Mormon studies mature, if more scholars will look at our arts as well as church history. Right now, Mormon studies is looking at the church's history as being 
its main focus. Mm-hmm. They're not really looking at artworks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's outside of mm-hmm. Mormon studies, which is uh, shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Because let's say if you had African American studies, you would practically begin with their cultural artifacts. That's yeah. how you would start. But for Mormon studies, that was not where we are. I hope that though, as discoveries like yours come to light and others like it, I can imagine the academic study of the church's art will include works by Mormons and about us as well. Some of these will be flattering and some won't. But when you have references of the church in the most important novels of the 20th century that we hadn't even discovered existed until now, that suggests to me that we have a long way to go. Am I off base with that? Onward and upward. To, to end, I, I, you know, my name appeared in the James Joyce Quarterly. Oh, yes. It I, 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 I smiled and nodded. I had a nonverbal this is a, response. This is my humble brag alert. So actually, I had completely forgotten this, and I didn't even have a copy. Mm-hmm. I had to go, uh, when I was looking at this last week, I, I found it. Uh, I did an opera with Murray Boren, who was the composer, and I was the librettist of the dead, and it was performed here at the Vineyard Theater in 1993, and uh, the James Joyce Quarterly came, and they, um, they reviewed it, and then I chatted with them afterwards awesome. and whatever. But... It's funny to me to think this literary hero, uh, Joyce, and I share more than I ever imagined we did. Mm -hmm. So now, with the things that you've brought to light, I feel like I have an even stronger connection with him. I mean, my name and his name really don't belong in any sentence (laughs) together. I I have no uh, aspirations to to be in that, that level. But these illusions were really meaningful to me because it made me think that we share something. So at the performance of the dead, it had multiple performances, and I was in charge of doing the uh, pirated recording. Mm-hmm. So I had one of those old little mini DAT recorders wow. uh, back in the day. They had those, and I had that in my lap. And uh, the com- our commercial recording has never been issued, and I think Murray and I probably have the only copies, these bootleg. So um, This is exclusive content. We're, well, forgive the sound quality. It's not the greatest recording. But I'm going to play a couple of minutes of this at the end of it. So, But before that, on behalf of the Mormon Arts Center, I want to thank you, Brigham, for our podcast guest today. Did you have fun? I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much for you having know, me. These topics don't come up in conversation that often. We need I'm to just waiting excuses. for a chance. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. Thank you. And thank you out there for listening. We've started something that you might like. Every day we post some historic fact about Mormon art that occurred on that date, somewhere between 1820 and the present. And you can find these on our website, www.mormonartscenter.org, under the tab On This Day. We're also posting them on Instagram and on our Facebook page, so take a look. I think you'll find them to be fun. I hope you'll share them. That's it for now. I'm your host, Glenn Nelson. Goodbye. Goodbye.